0: Have you ever experienced something that can only be explained by the power of God? Some movement or some group of people so filled with the Holy Spirit that you believe believe all over again that God is real and God is with us, heaven moving on earth, the Holy Spirit's movement, power and grace can be learned and experienced like an artist displays their paintings or a dancer performs the steps, step by step. We're seeing God's kingdom spread on earth. A hurting world seeks the hope of Jesus. So we, the church, pray spirit move and we the church declare a spirit move and we the church move in step with the spirit we are propelled by the power of the living god at work in our midst to bring good news to all people spirit
1: move well good morning c4 how's everyone today Good, good to have you here, and uh, as Pastor Ann said, a uh, huge welcome to those of you who are guests or visitors who are just joining us, maybe for the first time. And then I want to give a huge shout-out to our North Durham crowd up in Port Berry. Uh, I was up there with them last week. What a great group of people we have up in Port Perry. Let's give a huge round of applause for Port Perry here this morning. Yeah, yeah, big shout-out to our friends up in Port Perry, doing really, really well. Well today we're going to continue our look in this series called Spirit Move and we're looking at this move of the Holy Spirit in the early days of the book of Acts. And so far what we've seen is the Spirit moved at Pentecost when this group of believers were gathered together and as promised, as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them and uh, the church is empowered and lots of people uh, receive Christ as a move of that Holy Spirit. And then we've we've seen people then uh, who were uh, half-brothers, half-brothers and sisters in in the Samaritans. We we saw that the Samaritans received the same spirit when they believed the message that was preached to them. And we've seen uh, the spirit uh, move uh, two weeks ago when an African Jewish convert came to faith in Jesus through Philip the Evangelist. And then last week, Pastor John uh, taught us how a move of the Spirit transformed one of the great enemies of the early church, and he became a convert and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and became one of our best thinkers and one of our greatest church planters ever. And in this series, we've been seeing that God has been crossing barriers. God's kingdom is spreading, not just geographically, but culturally, religiously, and nationally. God is showing us here at C4 what God is already doing among us. You know, as we've been listening to these sermons, and as I've studied the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning, I'm just so wonderfully surprised at how God is already doing what we're seeing in the book of Acts among us, but we believe that God is showing us and taking us through this particular passage of Scripture at this particular time because God wants to do even more among us, and so we're trusting for a greater move of the Spirit of God. God's heart has always been for the whole world. God's heart has been for all of the nations of the earth. It always has been that way, ever since day one. But the Jewish people, you know, they, they got a, sort of a little bit of an elitist mentality because they were the chosen people and because God wanted to use them as a witness to all of the other nations of the earth. That they thought it was really all about them and really not about God's heart for the whole world. And we're reminded That God has made his intentions known right from the start for all of the nations of the earth. And that will become particularly important as we look at this passage of scripture in Acts chapter 10 this morning. You remember what God said way back in Genesis chapter 12 verses one through three when he said this to Abraham. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here it is. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. The promise that God made way back at the start to bless all of the nations. Because God's great heart is for all people. And today as we come to Acts chapter 10, we get to see a great move of the Spirit at the inception point of this promise to Abraham fulfilled. We get to see the start of this. And we should be excited and we should be thrilled this morning because to the best of my knowledge now, I don't know everyone who's here and I don't know absolutely everyone watching online, but most of us are Gentiles. (laughs) We're non-Jews here. And today we get to see the the gospel spill over to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And then you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, we are now recipients of that good news that has come to all people because God's great heart is for all of the nations. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in what we call the Great Commission? Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. In today's episode, we get to see how the Holy Spirit engineers the start of what Jesus asked his disciples to do. Acts chapter 10 is one of the longest episodes in the narratives of the book of Acts. It's one of the longest. So many verses in Acts chapter 10, and then even a spillover into the first 14 or so verses of Acts chapter 11. And I think it's so long because Dr. Luke, who is writing this and recounting this story, wants to make sure that nobody misses the point that this is a major turning point in the book of Acts. This is a major move of the Spirit of God. And so he devotes a lot of verses to this particular episode, to this particular story. See, it was very important for the early church to get this. And it's so important for us to get the same message here this morning. We need to understand what Acts chapter 10 means and what the implications are for me and for you. And as a church, as we're seeking more and more a move of the Holy Spirit, as we're calling out, as we're crying out, Spirit, move among us, Acts chapter 10 is so important for us because we need to know what to do in light of that great cry and that great prayer that we're uttering. So as I try to unpack this very long and very important episode I want us to look simply at three visions. I've tried to just, you know, condense it into three visions this morning. We're going to look at Cornelius' vision first and see what God was saying to Cornelius. And then we're going to look at Peter's vision because Peter also has a vision. And what is God saying to us through Peter's vision? And then I want to concentrate at the end on God's vision so that you and I can perhaps capture what God's vision is for his people and for his church. You know, I'm embarrassed to admit that I grew up in a prejudiced family. Living in Northern Ireland, we had very, very little exposure to any other cultures. And so I grew up in a family where racial jokes were the norm. I grew up in a family where all of the names of people of color were used and all of the stereotypes were reinforced. So in the year 2000, as an adult... When I had my first opportunity and I was invited to visit the country of India, I was apprehensive about going and visiting that country. There were three huge apprehensions that I had. First, my ongoing hate of vegetables. Because in my mind, that's all Indian people ate was vegetables. And I was like, how do, how do I even survive? Some of my Indian friends are shouting out at me. The second uh, reason I didn't want to go and I was apprehensive about going was I didn't want to get sick. I didn't want to catch something. I, you know, whenever you tell someone you're traveling to an exotic location, they always tell you the horror stories, right? People constantly, they love to tell you how, you know, you, you know, you'll just, you'll catch everything going and you'll bring these bugs back that are going to eat you from the inside out, you know, and they, they love to tell you those kinds of stories. So I was apprehensive about that. And the third thing was growing up in an extremely prejudiced family, I'd never interacted with Indian people before. I didn't really know much about Indian people, about Sikhs, about Muslims, about Hindus. I'd studied some stuff on their, religious, their religions and their faith systems, but I'd just never really interacted with those people, and so I was really apprehensive about going. But I'm thankful there was a stronger motivation for me than those negative uh, motivations that were there One of my spiritual heroes is a guy called John Hyde who was nicknamed Praying Hyde. He was a missionary to India at the turn of the 1900s. I've read almost everything I can find about John Hyde. I love this man. I'd love to meet this guy. I'd love to hang out with him. John Hyde did all of his ministry in what is a part of India called the Punjab. It's really part of India and Pakistan right now because the British in their great wisdom divided it that way. And I love John Hyde, and and as I've read his life story, as I've read the the accounts of his ministry, my heart has always kind of been beating along with him, and so this was the motivation that pushed me over the edge to go to the place where John Hyde ministered and where John Hyde actually gave his life in order to see the gospel come to the people of India. Well, my trip didn't disappoint. Thank God McDonald's in New Delhi had a McChicken. (laughs) I had McChicken, I had McFish, I had McCurry, I had McEverything. It was was good, and that sort of got me through a little bit of of some of my apprehensions around the food bit. But even more importantly than that, as I thought about my friend John Hyde, my hero John Hyde, as I visited sites like the Sikh Golden Temple in Amritsar, the holiest site on the face of the planet for men and women of a Sikh faith. And as I interacted with the people there in the Sikh temple, as I watched them uh, baptize themselves in the sacred waters there, as as I engaged them in conversation about why they would make pilgrimages from all over the world to come to the Sikh temple, God began to do something in my heart. On the Friday day of prayer, as I I stood outside the third largest mosque in the world and watched 10 to 15,000 men go streaming in and then come streaming out after an hour's worth of prayer, God began to touch my heart and change my heart. I had a conversation with a young man inside that mosque who hadn't missed a day of prayer in 15 years. And I asked him, you know, what are your greatest answers to prayer? What has Allah done for you? You have been so faithful all through your life. And he said, Oh, Allah never answers my prayers. Allah's got too many big things to worry about. And my heart broke for these people. God began to change me, God began to work something out in me, God began to root out of me deep prejudice. And change my heart for people who look different, who sounded different, who act different than me. As we'll see in Acts chapter 10 today, that's what God does. That's what God does when we put ourselves in a position for him to speak to us. When we actually begin to give God space in our lives. When when we take the time to have God work on our minds, on our character, on our hearts. As we cry out, Spirit, move. God first needs to move in me, and God first needs to move in you in order to answer that prayer. So let's look at Cornelius' vision this morning. We'll start there in Acts chapter 10. And we're going to go through Acts chapter 10, the whole of it. And so if you're following along, uh, you can take notes. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. Cornelius lived in Caesarea. Now, that means absolutely nothing to us, and our great temptation as we approach the Scripture would be, okay, this is just the opening. This is just, you know, just introducing the story. But we have to pause for just a second. Anytime you see a name in the Bible, a name of a place or a name of a person or something like that, you need to just take a little moment and and search why that's important. We see, Caesarea was a Roman town. It it was the town where everything happened and it was a kind of a, it was a showpiece of Roman culture. It's where the Roman administration resided. And they even had a, a temple in Caesarea that was dedicated to the worship of Caesar. And all of the Jews hated this town. This was a despised town. If you were to go up to an Orthodox Jew, a righteous Jew, someone who was seeking to follow after the the laws of Moses and the customs of the Jewish people, and you said to them, hey, tell me, have you ever been to Caesarea? They would cringe. Oh, Caesarea. Of all the towns you would mention in our land, why Caesarea. It was set up as an affront to the Jews. Now we also know that Cornelius is a centurion and many of you know that that means he was a commander over a hundred soldiers. And in all of my research, I found, you know, some interesting things about centurions. They were kind of like the strong, quiet types. I'd always thought centurions were kind of like, you know, in 300, like they were the guy going out in front of the battle and they were, no, these were organizers. These were military strategists. These were the guys who knew how to take orders, who knew how to follow orders. And when the going got tough, these are the guys that everyone looked to because they'd be counted on in the face of battle. Luke also tells us that Cornelius and his family were God-fearers. Although these people are Romans, Roman citizens, they were attracted to the, the ethics, the theology, and the worship of the Jewish people. We're told very specifically that Cornelius and his family followed the Jewish prayer system. They prayed to God. They prayed to the God of the Jews. And they followed it on the regular ritual of prayer three times a day. But we also know that he and his family were incredibly generous towards people who were in need. So let's look at this vision that Cornelius has now that we understand who this guy is and where he lives. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. That's a normal Jewish prayer time. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So during one of his normal prayer times, and I want you to remember that, during one of his normal prayer times, because that's going to be important a little bit later on to us. During this normal prayer time, Cornelius encounters an, an angelic being who tells him that God is pleased with him because of two things, because of his prayers and because of his giving. Now, it's interesting. He's told nothing else other than go send for Peter. There's this guy called Simon Peter who's at like the holiday resort place of Joppa by the sea and he's staying with a guy called Simon and you're just to send for him. He has something important for you. Now, really, not a lot of details. You know, I would hope that if I was in my normal prayer time and an angelic being showed up, that I'd get a few more details. But this is is really not a lot that Cornelius gets, you know, from, from this angelic being. So how does Cornelius respond? When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. I love Cornelius' response. Here is a man who is used to giving orders, and yet we see him immediately being obedient to the little that he knew. You know, he didn't take time to, you know, think about it and ponder it. He didn't go ask his friends, hey, listen, I had this kind of angel visit me, and I was just wondering: what do you guys think about what they said? What do you think I should do in this situation? He didn't seek advice. He didn't ask for other things. He he is simply obedient to what he has been told. And so he sends off some people to go and find this person who has been named by the angelic being. So that leads us to Peter's vision. Now, we know that Peter has been through a really busy ministry season. You remember that when Philip preached to the Samaritans and they responded, Peter and John were sent by the church to verify what's going on. And Pastor John did a great job of taking us through why that's so significant. These hated Samaritans, these half-breeds, these half-brothers, these persons who have defiled the faith, who are not following the real ways of God, they're not following the laws and the customs of Moses as set out in the books of the Bible, in the Torah, and Peter sent, and Peter realizes that they've come to faith. And Peter and John, they lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And everyone's astounded that they receive the Holy Spirit because they have experienced just what Peter and the others experienced on the day of Pentecost. And they just marvel at that. In Acts chapter 9, we find that Peter has been used by God to heal people. And there was a woman named Dorcas. Side note, don't ever call your kid Dorcas. There's a woman named Dorcas who is doing all kinds of good work in the community, and she dies, and everyone's mourning, and everyone's weeping the death of Dorcas, and Peter comes, and God uses Peter in a great move of the Spirit to bring her back to life, and news of this travels all over the region, and and people are excited, and they're coming, and many people are getting healed, and many people are coming to faith in Jesus. Jesus. And Peter ends up taking, I think, a bit of a break. And he goes to the coastal town of Joppa. And Luke adds this little note at the end of chapter 9 that most of us, again, would skip over very quickly. And that is that he stayed at the house of Simon the Tanner. Doesn't mean much to us again. But to Jewish people, this is setting off all kinds of alarm bells for them as they read this encounter of what's going on. Tanners were considered unclean. Because they worked with the skins of dead animals. They had to live outside the community of faith. And they were despised and rejected by those who saw themselves as religious and righteous. Now maybe God's already been working in Peter's heart. And, and, and I'm, I'm reading into the text here. But I'd like to believe that Simon the Tanner has come to faith in Jesus. Jesus. And that's why Peter is now accepting him as a brother in Christ and going to stay at his house. But, but either way, this is, this is a move. This is a shift. God is doing something here because we find Peter, one of the apostles, one of the leaders of the early church, with all of these Jewish converts in the church, and he's staying at the house of someone who is ceremonially unclean. Well then, look at verses 9 and 10. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, these are the people from Cornelius, and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Maybe Peter just wanted to get away from everybody. Like maybe Peter wanted to just spend some alone time after a long, busy season. And it was not uncommon in those days, given the architecture of the buildings, that people would go up onto the roof. There you would get the cool sea breeze, and you would sit under a canopy, and you could just have some kind of alone time, some quiet time from everything that's happening in the house below. Maybe Peter is thinking through the recent activities of the church and how the ministry is growing in ways and at a pace that I don't think any of them ever expected. Maybe Peter's trying to understand what's just happened with the Samaritans. Maybe he's remembering that Jesus said that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. No matter what's going on in Peter's mind, he's hungry. He's hungry, and while he's waiting for food, he's up in the roof, and he decides to take a personal prayer time. So second time in a passage that we find people taking personal prayer times if god puts it in a passage twice we should think that that's important and we should be prepared to kind of grapple with that but we'll talk about that in a minute so he's hungry and he's waiting for food and and he falls into a trance and and the greek word here that's used for trance is the word that we get our word ecstatic from peter has an experience he has a vision. He falls into a trance. Something happens. He has an encounter up there on the roof by himself. And here's what Peter saw in verses 11 through 16. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. Peter replied, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So Peter's up there. He's hungry. He's trying to pray. And by the way, have you ever done that? You try to pray and concentrate when you're hungry? Doesn't work a lot of times. It's one of the tough things about fasting when we fast. So Peter's up there, and all of a sudden he has this experience, this ecstatic experience, and he sees a large, what looks like a large sheet coming down out of heaven, being let down by the four corners. And when he looks into the sheet, he sees all kinds of animals. And then he's given the command, since you're hungry, Peter, don't you love how God uses that? Since you're feeling hungry, Peter, just get up, kill whatever you want, and eat it. And Peter reacts violently because this has got kosher and non-kosher animals in it. Now, side note, if you're a note-taker, I just want to point out, there are no veggies in the sheet. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So, get up, kill, and eat. And, and Peter reacts strongly, and in typical Peter fashion, he, he, re- he responds with a contradiction. Not so, Lord. (laughs) No, God. It's typical Peter. He just blurts it right out. But he's reacting strongly because he says, Look, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ, but I was brought up as a Jew. And I know you can't eat certain kinds of animals. It's just not permitted, God. Why are you telling me to do this? And the voice from heaven says, Don't call any of the animals unclean, if God calls them clean. Very interesting. This happens three times. In Hebrew, when something is repeated three times, it's the most extreme form of emphasis that you can make. So clearly something groundbreaking is happening here. Something monumental is shifting here. This vision, this experience that Peter is getting is of extreme importance because God not only just brings it down, like remember Cornelius, he just had the vision of an angel and he gets told a message and then the angel's gone. But with Peter, this vision is given to him and he responds and he interacts, but he's given it three times and then the sheet is taken away. There's an emphasis that's happening here. Well, suddenly the vision ends and Peter's experience and prayer time are interrupted. It says, starting in verse 17, While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And they called out, asking if Simon, who was also known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all of the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. So Cornelius' messengers Stop at Simon the Tanner's house, and they ask for Peter. Luke tells us that Peter is still thinking about the meaning of the vision that he's just had. See, evidently he didn't understand it. And in verse 17, where it says Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, and in verse 19 it says while Peter was still thinking about the vision, you should underline or should highlight those. What Peter is doing here is he's not just kind of going, Huh, that was interesting. wonder what they're making for dinner. It, the language that's used here is this has really caught Peter's attention. This has kind of rattled Peter a little bit. Peter is really thinking thoroughly about what he's just experienced. Peter is searching. Peter is, you know, seriously trying to understand the meaning of this vision. It's, it's caught his attention. Something has happened. Something profound he recognizes is happening here. But then suddenly it's cut short. And Peter's confused. He doesn't fully get what's going on. And yet the Holy Spirit now takes the vision away from him, and the Spirit now says to him, these guys who are downstairs at the gate who are calling out, you need to go with them, so go, Peter. Again, I love Peter's response. It's obedience. Peter hasn't got it all figured out yet. He doesn't know the full meaning of the vision yet. He's perplexed by it. He's contemplating it. He's chewing it over. He's mulling it over. He's he's running it all through his filters in his mind. And yet he still doesn't fully understand. And yet the Holy Spirit says, you need to go. And so Peter goes. God was leading Peter here. And we need to catch this. Yes, God was leading Peter. But Peter was earnestly seeking after God too. You know, so, so many times I, I talk to people and they say, hey, Pastor Dave, you know, how do we know God's will for my life? And so you outlined some of the things that, that you know, that the church has believed for a long time about, about prayer and about the community of faith, about your spiritual gifts, about some of the passions that God has put into your heart, about reading the scripture, about spending time in community and devotions. And so many times people say, yeah, yeah, kind of, you know, check, check, I'm doing that kind of stuff. But there needs to be this earnest seeking after the things of God. An unreserved seeking after the things of God for your life. Because so many times we go into checking out God's will as an option. (laughs) If it's what I like, if it meets all of my check marks, then sure, I'm, I'm, I'm wide open to God's will. But what if it completely turns your life around? What if it changes absolutely everything that you've ever believed or every thought before? Earnestly seeking God's will. And when people earnestly seek after God's will, the Scripture is clear. They will find it, and they will find Him. We see this with Peter and Cornelius in this passage. Well, then finally this morning, I want to look at God's vision. This, I believe, is what God is trying to communicate to us through the Scripture. After some food and a night of rest for Cornelius' messengers, the group returns to Caesarea. Starting in verse 23, the second half of verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and his close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask, why have you sent for me? In keeping with the practices of the early church, you see this throughout the early church, Peter starts out and he takes along some other believers with him. And when they arrive at Cornelius' house, they find this large gathering. Cornelius is full of anticipation. Again, a great act of obedience. This angelic being has appeared to him and said, just send for a guy, his name's Peter, and he's going to tell you some things. Cornelius says, if this is good enough for an angel to show up and tell me, then it's good enough for my whole family and all my friends to hear. And so he pulls together this whole crowd of people. So important is the fact that he has invited everyone that he knows. Now, I just love how the Spirit moves and orchestrates opportunities for evangelism. Don't you? Here, the Holy Spirit is already way ahead of Peter. Way out in front, preparing for what's about to happen. Now, maybe Peter is trying to cover himself, or maybe it's because of those who joined him from Joppa that Peter reminds the crowd at Cornelius' house that it is unlawful... For Jews to come into the house of Gentiles or associate with them or even hang out with them. And, and we know a little later in the passage we'll see that the group that actually comes with Peter from Joppa are what are called the circumcision group. These are Jewish believers who are holding a position in this new movement of the Spirit, this new movement of Jesus, that anybody who wants to come to faith in Jesus has to follow all of the laws and all of the Jewish customs. And for men, that meant if you weren't circumcised as a child, if you were a Roman or someone else, then you had to go through all of these rites before you could come to faith in Jesus. And they're about to get their world shaken up. But Peter goes in, and and I'm sure Peter's struggling a little bit, because remember, he's still processing the vision, and we're only like a day and a half afterwards. He's still processing all of that, and he walks in, and all of a sudden, there's not just this guy called Cornelius, but there's a whole crowd of people. They're all his friends and his relatives. They're all non-Jews that are gathered And Peter's got some of the the legalists along with him and he's like, oh man, what am I walking into here? Well, you, you know that our laws and our customs don't allow for this kind of thing, right? What Peter's saying so that we kind of, you know, that we kind of get the drift so that we would understand it in our language. This is like a U.S. Marine and an ISIS soldier having Thanksgiving dinner together. That's kind of the gravity of it. But you remember that Jesus was often ridiculed by the religious elite for doing the things that he did, and they called him the friend of sinners. But then in verse 28, Peter makes this unbelievable statement. Right after he says that, you know, it's unlawful for me to be here according to the Jewish religion, he says this, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Did you get it? Did you see the shift? Let me read it again. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. See, Peter has now, it's dawning on him what God is up to. The vision that he got was about animals, not people. But Peter has made the translation. He understands what this move of the Spirit means. He understands that it really wasn't about eating animals. That wasn't the whole goal of what the Holy Spirit was leading him. It's actually about people because God calls. God loves people more than he loves your puppy. And I have a puppy. But God loves people. This was not about animals. It's about people. And it's finally the penny has dropped with Peter. I see what the Spirit of God is doing. So Cornelius retells his vision so that everyone hears. And then Peter begins his sermon. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. But he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel. Announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Peter now is just starting to get rolling in his sermon. He's just starting to like gain a little steam. And in this first part of the sermon, to the crowd, he is telling them about Jesus. He, he has to assume that they don't know maybe about Jesus. Maybe they haven't heard everything about Jesus. And so he begins to make the connection between Jesus and the God of the Jews. And he's talking about how God anointed and appointed Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and how the power of the Holy Spirit was on Jesus and how he went around and he ministered out of the power of the Holy Spirit with the giftings of the Holy Spirit. See, we always need our evangelism to be about Jesus. So many times we we see people, and I see this often with celebrities, that they're so wrapped up in telling their story that they never get to his story. We've got to remember it's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Peter starts with Jesus, and then he talks about his own experiences with Jesus and the experiences of his friends with Jesus. Verse 39, he says, we are witnesses of everything that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, Peter is just starting to really get excited. He's he's getting the glasses off. He's getting the sleeves rolled up. He's really starting to get it all pumped up now. He's getting to the good part of the story. He's really starting to let them have, he's like, okay, so let me tell you about Jesus. Let me give you the core essence of the gospel. It's about Jesus being raised from the dead. And we saw him. Like we saw this whole thing and he's he's recounting and he's talking about how they're witnesses and he's getting all excited about it. And then comes the heavenly interruption. Wow, I just love this. I love this. The preacher gets interrupted. Not by some guy shouting out down the front row here or something like that. But the the preacher gets interrupted by the best interruption of all. He gets interrupted by the Holy Spirit. Peter is in full stride. And then this happens, verse 44. 44. While Peter was still speaking. (laughs) so I love. Peter's still speaking. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. These people, Cornelius... His friends and his family, they're listening intently. They are filled with anticipation because the Spirit of God has gone before Peter and has prepared their minds and their hearts and they're sitting there. And as Peter is talking about Jesus and about how he saw Jesus, he ate with Jesus, he saw him hang on the cross, he saw him after he had resurrected from the dead and that the power of the Holy Spirit was on him and that he was the Messiah, in their minds they're like, we get it. We believe. Peter's like, but I'm not done. I got a whole I got like nine pages more of notes to go. And so they believe in their hearts. Well, that's enough for God. <laughs> and so the Holy Spirit just comes on them while, while Peter's still speaking. They all start speaking in tongues. So, in other words, what happens here is exactly what happened at Pentecost. The uncircumcised group, and and I love how Dr. Luke says it, like Dr. Luke in the original language, he says it much more powerfully, like in us, in our English, what does it say? It says, um, yeah, the uncircumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished at the gift. No, 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 this is how it is. They lost their flipping minds. (laughs) They were like, are you kidding us? They know these are Romans. These are uncircumcised. They haven't gone through all of the customs and everything, and the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who was poured out on the apostles, is now poured out on these Romans. They're part of the family, they are part of the family of God. God has now bridged the final massive gulf in their thinking. God poured out His Spirit on Jews who believed in Jesus. God has poured out His Spirit on Samaritans, half-Jews who have believed in Jesus, and now even the dog Gentiles, because that's how they thought. The Spirit of God has been poured out on them in great power, and God makes no distinction. It's exactly the same evidence that they had at Pentecost. So then Peter says this, Well, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Peter gets it. Peter completely gets it. He understands everything now about the vision. It all makes sense to him, finally. This move of the Holy Spirit has broken through all of the final barriers. The gospel of Jesus is open to all people, regardless of their ethnicity, education, economic status, religion, political views, age, gender, or marital status. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, brown, yellow, pink, or blue. The good news of Jesus is for you. The kingdom of God does not categorize people according to their background or their race. God does not show favoritism. There's this great picture in Revelation chapter 7. John sees this image. And he says this, And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried, cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Every nation, every tribe, every people group is welcome in the family of God, in the kingdom of God. So, what should we learn and how, C4, should we respond? Let me throw out three things for us to grapple with. The first one is this. We need to think about repentance for favoritism and prejudice in verse 28 and verse 34 these these words you know God has shown me that anyone he calls clean we can't call unclean and in 34 he says I now know that God does not show favoritism you know here's a, a little exercise that we can do and I encourage you here and up in North Durham close your eyes for just a second and with your eyes closed, just simply say, God, is there any group, is there any people, is there any ethnicity, is there any economic status, is there a gender, is there an age group, or those of a marital status, that frankly, God, I'm just prejudiced towards them. See, this passage reminds us. You can open your eyes. This passage reminds us that Peter and those with him were filled, filled with generations of prejudice, and God just blew it away in a moment. And one of the things that we need to remember as a church, because God is moving here at C4 and is doing wonderful things, and for for all of this mosaic of a congregation, I am so thrilled that we are a mosaic. I love what all of our nationalities and backgrounds and colors bring to the whole. I'm so thrilled and excited to be one of the pastors here who's involved in what's going on. But if God's going to bring more and more of the nations to our doorstep, then we have to root out prejudice in our own hearts and in our own lives. How's it going to be when you come to C4 on Sunday morning and there are stacks of shoes outside? Because for some people in their background, walking into this holy place, you can't wear shoes. How's it going to be when you look around and you can't see what's going on in stage because the guy's turban is so big in front of you that you have to move? How are you going to feel about that? And we could go on and we could go on. But we need, individually and corporately, to root out any form of prejudice that exists. The second thing that I would say this passage pushes us and demands of us is that we need to grapple with the unknown and the uncomfortable. Often our stubborn hearts can close our minds to the things that God wants to do in us and through us. I love Peter's obedience, Cornelius' obedience, even when they didn't know what was going on, even though they didn't fully understand it, when God said go, when God said do this, they did it. And God brought understanding as they stepped out in faith. Peter's openness to change was fueled by his willingness to grapple with things that were uncomfortable to him. What is God asking you to grapple with? What are you uncomfortable with here at C4 That maybe God is just asking you to step out in faith on. See, while God clearly led Peter, we know that he was thinking it through and he was earnestly seeking after the will of God. And then finally, you know, we can't can't ignore that prayer happened a lot in this passage. Seeing and hearing God speak when we pray is one of the things that we have to see and observe in this passage. In Cornelius, in Peter, In the early church in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, individually and together the church needs to pray. And it is often in times of personal and corporate prayer that there is a move of the Holy Spirit. Read your history books. Read about great times of revival. Read about times when God has moved in significant ways. And almost always they are preceded by times of corporate and individual prayer where where people are crying out, for a move of the Spirit. And then in those prayer times, God begins to move in the hearts of people. So we need to be a praying people. Well, Nikki and the team are going to lead us in a closing song. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to to respond in worship as we seek for God to continue to move in our midst. So let's pray together. So... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God, first of all, we thank you for the Scripture. We thank you that we have the Word of God and that it is living and active. So I pray, Lord, that, you know, what's from you would really uh, be sealed in people's hearts today, and anything that is not of you or was not of you, God might just fall by the wayside. Lord, uh, I pray for my friends and for myself that you would continue to root out prejudice in our hearts and in our minds that we would be a people who like peter would say that we now realize that you don't show favoritism. Lord, also would you help us to grapple with the things that we're uncomfortable with especially in the kingdom? And Lord, would we, you know, recommit ourselves to corporate and individual prayer? because we are longing and we're asking and we're pleading for a move of the Spirit. And so, Lord, we just ask, Spirit move.